Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, uh, we had our Super Bowl party Sunday. And that's what I like about being older. When you're young, when you go to parties, you know, when I was young, we'd sit there and everyone would like steal people's beers. I don't know if you remember that, but we would like hide beers and like, you know, the the drawer where the vegetables were. But when you're older and you have parties, people just bring stuff. People brought so much beer. I think we sent people home with like three cases of beer because we don't really drink in the house. So we're sitting there and food, I mean, Joanne made our meatballs as usual. She made 75 meatballs. But and we, we put a crudite out, which I figured out, even though we live in California, people don't want to eat healthy because no one touched that damn crudite. I think two carrots and one tomato got eaten. But then people just brought food. I mean, someone brought a tray of subs. Someone bought carne asada. I mean, it was just insane. So, it was good. I'm glad we had a good time. It was a great game. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, we have a, a good guest today. A very good guest. Enough, actually. I met him uh, last week and I got hurt in his studio. Uh, if you see me right now, I have a, I have a cut on my lip. It, it does not look good. And uh, we have Jamie Klein. How you doing, Jamie? Good. How are you? Good. It was just, it's so funny. You know, all, whenever, well, people just, you know, I tripped over something. I hit my mouth on the table. Now, Whenever you get a, a mark on your face, you have to tell people, like, every person you see. Yes, exactly, yeah. And people aren't nice. Oh, my God, you look like crap. Cooper, you look like crap. Well, well you know, man, you look like crap. What's wrong with you? So it happened. But Jamie's a great photographer, but he's got a very, very interesting background. Now, now you grew up where? I grew up in Ohio. Okay. Was, in, uh, born, in, born in Cleveland, but I was raised pretty much in Akron. Okay, now, was your family artistic? Because I know you went into comedy and you wrote and you, you're an amazing photographer. No. How did no. it happen? How did you have this all? You got an hour? Uh, um, uh, my father was in retail. And he was actually born in Hungary and was raised in Canada. And my mom worked at a school. And um, I'd always been, you know, entertainment. TV was a big part of my life uh, as growing up because I really didn't have too many friends. And uh, that was pretty, my dad worked really hard. I mean, he, he probably had one day off every two weeks. Um, so he was vacant. And and also withholding, you know, psychologically speaking. And my mom, you know, was was there, but she was, you know, on the phone with her friends and busy doing her own stuff. So, uh, and I, I had an older sister who was very popular in high school, so she was never home. And a younger sister who, um, you know, I really didn't have that much in common with. So the TV became my... You know, my friend. What were some of the shows you were watching back then? What uh, did you enjoy? The the big one for me was Get Smart. Okay. That was that was like the light bulb. When I saw that show, the light bulb just went off. And uh, my friend Jay Dean and I used to do Maxwell Smart because we were like in fifth grade. Now you do it, do six, it. Can you still do it? No, oh. no, I can't because Damn. it was before my voice changed. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, Matt. Yeah, you know, it was, and we would just do that constantly. Constantly, and then we would look forward to every week to that to that show being on, and that was that was like the oh man, and my dad loved it when he was home. He would watch it, and it was like okay, this is kind of like a way to get to get in there the, the the comedy, the laughter, and I was always funny at the table, um, and uh, you know it, it just. just kind of started that way it's really amazing with get smart i didn't really watch it and i should i want to go back and watch it because it was it was mel brooks and mel brooks is such a genius and that was show you know it's one of those shows that when you talk to people no one ever goes ah get smart stunk like yeah. everyone's like oh my god you didn't watch it like especially because i'm 51 they're like yeah what it was mel brooks and buck henry okay i didn't know buck henry was okay oh yeah yeah they they both had uh had created it and um I mean, just all that stuff, you know, would you believe, and sorry about that, Chief, and the cone of silence, and just, uh, it, was, it was really amazing. So when you're watching that, it was just, it was, you know, it got you into the world of laughter. Now, at what point did you know you wanted to do stand-up and write? I mean, did, was that uh, in high school, or how did that whole process happen? Uh, yeah, it was in high school uh, when I had heard, uh, I mean, I had been studying uh you know, the Bill Cosby records, I mean, and really studying. And it's, it's one of the things, you know, as I was brushing my teeth this morning, thinking about, I've always been fascinated with the technical aspect, which kind of led me to photography and filmmaking, but I've also been fascinated with the artistic aspect. And, um, you know, I memorized, uh, you know, uh, FMAM, you know, uh, George Carlin's album, and I memorized uh, Another World, uh, uh, Jonathan Winter's, album and 
a very big influence on me was Alan Sherman. Now, I don't know if you know who Alan Sherman was. I know the name. Please refresh me. He was he was a song parodyist. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Hello, Mudda, Hello, Fada. That was All right. His, that was Hello, Mudda, Hello, yeah. Dr. Mano. when you get those three albums, My Son the Nut, My Son the Celebrity, and um, uh, there, was an, there was a third one, all of those songs are just like uh, amazing little nuggets of genius. And Alan Sherman was a game show producer. I think he produced What's My Line. Okay. Or one of the, you know, or I've Got a Secret of one of those. And this is what he did at cocktail parties, was he just sang these weird little song parodies. And, uh, of course, you know, I memorized, you know, Mel Brooks, uh, the 2,000-year-old man. Uh, and I had always been attracted to comedy. But in high school, I was tiny. I was a tiny kid. Because you're tall now. You're six, what, two? Yeah, I'm six, I'm six two. Yeah, but, uh, and people see me now, like, at a reunion, and they go, oh, my God. What That's funny. I mean, it was like five, six in high school, you know, five, 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 six. I was, as, as uh, my friend Charlie Hill would say, I was, I was small, but I was slow. Okay. Uh, so so uh, athletics were not for me, but I did try out for the uh, football team in ninth grade, and I didn't like it, but I became the manager, okay? And, th- and that led into athletic training, which is, which is the care and prevention of athletic injuries. And I thought, oh, that, that sounds like fun. I could do that. And I was the only person out of my high school to get a scholarship to college. I went to Kent State on an athletic trainer scholarship. Was so uh, you know, I was taping ankles and giving ultrasound and putting guys in whirlpools and diagnosing injuries. How great is that? I mean, think about it. When you think about it, you know, it's something you did because you you weren't good at sports, and then from that, you get a free ride to school. I mean, that, yeah. that it, that's that's it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. Well, I was I was uh, you know I was picked on a lot, so. Those and jocks. Now you can kick their ass because you're six no, two. No, no. <laughs> Actually, I was not kicked, picked on by the jocks because you would tape their ankles and you okay. would take care of them. So who picked on me were other kids. You know, I, I grew up in, you know, in a kind of rural area. So there were a lot of um, guys who were majoring in auto mechanics and metal okay. shop, you know. and, and you know, <laughs> DeVry. The DeVry you nothing know, against DeVry, DeVry, DeVry or whatever. But. What we used to call sod busters. Okay. You know, and, and, uh, and I basically became involved in sports because the protection it gave me. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the football player would stick up for me because you were I like, helped him with his injury and he would help me. You so, were like Duval in The Godfather. Yeah, you, yeah. Were there, you, were your, you, were, you were the Thomas Hagen of your high school. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, uh, so I went, I, went to, I went to college. I went to Kent State for a year. And uh, then I saw Freddie Prinze on The Tonight Show. Now, I had, you know, I'd been a fan of, of comedy. Uh, you, know, you know, like I said, George Carlin, uh, Jonathan Winters. And, you know, you see Robert Klein, you see David Brenner on Tonight Show. I mean, those guys were just polished. Oh, yeah. And then I saw Freddie, 19 years old, like really, like amazing, but not as polished and a little bit, a little bit rougher around the edges. And it made me think, hey, wait a minute. If he can do this, I can do this. And um, I, I told my dad after my first year of college that I was going to move to New York to pursue stand-up. And that's exactly what I did. That must have been, you know, back then. I mean, you know, because I'm, I'm not sure who your contemporaries were back then. But it must have been insane because there, it wasn't like now where you can get comedy everywhere. I mean, when you moved, I mean, were you, were you a little scared, afraid when you moved? Or were you, I mean, what, or did you really go all balls in? Let me tell you something. I had no idea at all what I was doing. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll share a personal story because it's like really stupid. But one of my, one of my places of uh, great comfort was the downtown library in Akron. And I would take the bus there and I would go and I would listen to records all day. Not only comedy records, but classical music. I was very much into classical. Um, and, uh, and, and then I would bring the records home and I would listen to them and, uh, and then uh, when I got to New York, I got to New York. I took a Greyhound bus because it was forty bucks, and I had like six hundred dollars from bar mitzvah and from you know from college fund, and that's the, all the money I had in the world, six hundred bucks. So I um, I get to New York. It's like six o'clock in the morning. I take the Greyhound bus, right? Because it's like an eight-hour, six-hour thing from Akron. And the very first thing I do is I go to the public library to sign up for a library card. 
and they, so they give me the application and it says address it's like oh right I, I don't have an apartment i have no place to live so that was like the <laughs> the first wake-up call and um and i you know I, I found a place to live in brooklyn uh which is very strange because it's it was about it was on state street which was downtown and it's about a block away from where my son ended up living. Now, he had no idea I had lived there. And okay. We just, when he decided to move to New York, it's where uh, he just moved a block away from there. And at that time, not that many guys were, I mean, the, the class was relatively small. Uh, it was Andy Kaufman was there, but he would come in, he'd do his bit, and he'd leave. He never hung out. Uh, guys I hung with are guys like David Say. Okay, I know David Say. I work with him. He's living in Florida now, I think. I, I don't know. Is he still around? Yeah, friends with him on Facebook. Oh, seriously? He just did a show with Elaine Boozler. He wow, just posted. Wow, uh, that's that's great because he he we would we were waiting in line together out in front of Catch. Okay. And um and a guy named Mark Ruby who I I think has dropped out of the dropped out of the business. But I, I did I did stand up in New York for six months. And uh, and then. I just said, you know, look, you know, you really got to hone your craft. I'm really, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it here. I think I'm going to move out to the coast because it's warmer. And so I, I moved out here. Now, in that class, it was Letterman. Letterman had been out here for a month. Uh, George Miller, uh, uh, Leno, of course, was out here. Uh, Alan Bursky, um, Gino Bronstein, um, a lot of guys, uh, let me think. Uh, you know, guys like Sam Quasman. Um and they they were out here and they were uh David had just become a regular at okay. the comedy store. Now had you been to LA before you moved out? I had, I had not been yes. Uh well actually I had been to Orange County. Okay. I spent a little time down there um between my junior and senior year in, in high school with my friend Kurt. But I had uh I had never been up to the city. I've been up to you know, we came up to the city to visit. Right. You know, but I didn't I didn't live here. So I got an apartment on Vine Street, and, and back uh, then I'm sure Vine was wasn't that good. No, Vine was not that good. Even now, it's yeah, not that great. They're trying to redo it. It's so funny. They they're trying to redo all these places, but it's like anything. Yeah, that's great. Vine's good. If you go to Vine, if you go to Pantages, it's good. But if you go three blocks away, it's hell. And that's where I was. I was okay. on Vine and Selma. Okay. And uh, and I became a regular at the comedy store simply because of one thing. I did a David Brenner impression. That knocked Mitzi on her ass. Could you just, can you still do it? Yeah, sure. Hey, how you doing? Hey, what, what's going on? Uh, uh, you know, I got to tell you, funny about David Brenner is my dad uh, before he passed, passed since, but he uh, he always hated David Brenner, and I would say why? He goes, I don't like his face, and it was oh, yeah. the stupidest reason. Like I don't like uh, dad. I don't, I don't I don't like his face. Yeah, uh, the bit was uh, David Brenner's. He's, he's a great comic, but he's running out of things to observe. He's like the king of observation. He's running out of things to observe, and. Um, it was, it was, you ever notice when people walk down the street, it's one foot in front of the other. Why are they doing that? Isn't that dumb? So that was the, that was, and Mitzi just fell in love with it and made me MC. And uh, I worked the door. I worked the door. Me and John Witherspoon. Okay. I worked the door. See, it's just so crazy how it starts, you know, because in Philadelphia at the Comedy Factory outlet, like all of us worked the door. Like I did. Keith Robinson's very big comic. Adam McKay, the biggest director in Sure, yeah. Country, he worked the door. And it was funny because you got the little satin jacket and you're all excited because then you got your, I remember we got five bucks an hour and it was under the table. Shh, IRS. But yeah. <laughs> that was years ago and past. Believe me, if you're yeah. coming after bringing out, you got problems. But it was great because we got, we knew we would get stage time because back then in Philly, there was like 25 comics. You would pick out a hat. So if you got 22, it sucked. You went on late. If you got one, it sucked. But when you were worked door, you would get like five through 10 you could pick so yeah. great i would uh mc me okay. and spoon me and spoon would split mc i would mc the first part of the show and then spoon would mc the second part of the show uh and spoon taught me how to hold a table for tips i mean he was just man he knew all the angles that guy and i just saw him a year ago with uh george wallace he was he was opening for george and he has really exploded i mean he is so they're both like oh, yeah. they're really both amazing i mean they're both guys. amazing comics yeah so you're doing comedy now. Now, now, when did you start writing? Because I know you had a screenplay. Yeah. Well, so so what happened was, uh, uh, Murray Langston, who was a friend of mine, I wrote a co uh, who w was the unknown comic on right. the Gong Show. Um, and I, you know, look, I couldn't make a living working at the door at the comedy store. You get ten bucks a night, 
and then to MC, and this is pre, all pre-strike. Uh, and so Murray said, you know, you should you, you should write some jokes for the Gong Show, and uh, so and I'll, I'll give them to Larry Spencer. So I wrote, you know, twenty introductions for Chuck, and Larry read them and he loved them, and he said, hey, you know, why don't you come over here and write? So that was the beginning of the writing. Actually, it was not the beginning of the writing. The beginning of the writing was Fern with Tonight. Oh, great show. I was actually a, a creative consultant on Vernwood Tonight for like a month because that's all the Writers Guild would allow them because they, would ha- they were paying me under scale. So, um, How did you get that job? Was it just from someone you knew or, or was it just... Uh, yes, here's, here's how I got that job. The new Laugh-In was coming up, right? And all of my friends were going up for it and going up for it. And there was a head writer named Digby Wolf who uh, read my stuff, really liked it. He said, look, we're fully staffed, but you should go over to Fernwood Tonight. You should try Alan Thick was producing okay. Fernwood Tonight. And uh, he read my stuff and really liked it. And so that, that got me in there for a month. And I sat with casting, with Rose Grimalia in casting, coming up with characters for all these people that, that came in. Um, and then ultimately it led to The Gong Show. And I was on the Gong Show for a couple of years. I wrote some pilots for Chuck. I wrote the pilot for the Donald Ninety Eight Beauty Show. <laughs> um, so I did. I did a lot of a lot of that stuff. A lot of now, stuff with Chuck. Now, the funny thing is, because the Gong Show, and I always, I always say that the, one of the talents that people don't understand is writing stupid jokes when you're a smart person is hard, and people don't get that. Like you know, you see some comics who just suck, and they're they just don't get it their right, jokes just right. suck and for you it must have been hard because it, it was so it had you probably had the right so damn corny because that show I mean I love that show I remember watching Gigi and the Dance Machine and all for that sure. it, it's, it was corny and Chuck Barris's whole character was corny I mean it must have been a, a process for you to write they, they had to probably say okay this joke it's great we can't use it it's not, not corny enough it must really be a hard mindset to do that every day and that happened uh, and Chuck, but Chuck, see, here's the thing. Chuck was like an amazing producer and really, really smart. And my whole management style, and we'll get into that a little later, my whole management style is based on him. When he had a staff meeting, everybody on staff came in. The receptionist put everybody on, you know, voicemail. The, the, the security guy would come in, and we would all sit in Chuck's office, and he, everything would be inclusive. And uh, he taught me a tremendous amount. Uh, but he also understood the show. He understood the silliness of the show, and he understood what the audience liked. And um, he would say, it's not right for the show. And, and Larry and I would keep him in you know, the smart file. Okay. Right? Um, but that was, that was great. And I always wanted to do a play because it was taped. They, we taped six shows in one day. And I always wanted to do a play because all of those acts were in a holding area. So we had 30 or 35 of those acts in this rehearsal hall at NBC. We shot at NBC. How great is that? I mean, it, just the stuff you see. I remember I had written, I'd worked with a guy named Topper Carew, who later was a producer for sure. uh, Martin yeah. Lawrence. Uh-huh. And I, me and Topper, I was writing, someone hooked me up with him. He wrote for Maud, didn't he? I don't know. He's, I mean, it's, he's been around. He was, yeah, I, I haven't I told th- for I think he did. But yeah. we had an idea. We wanted to do a, like as you said, the, the holding area. We wanted to sit there and have a reality type show where we would have a casting like a casting office and we would put on like this is when backstage and all I was around say you know craziest acts you know win $10,000 and we wanted to sit there and have these people come in and just record the waiting room and have a few plants of course people who were like just like let's say me I could be in there being some really wacko act and so what you must have seen because most of the people in the gong show a lot of them I think really thought they had talent well uh, some of them did there were a lot of people like Murray you know I mean I mean he came out with a bag on his head you know he didn't want to be known that way um, uh, but a, a lot of them were actors who came up with characters that they then did okay uh, you know they then did but we took a lot of heat for putting people and making fun of people and it's like hey you know, these people are coming to us. And uh, the uh, every once in a while I would go down. There was this place called the Old World on Kawanga where we would hold auditions. And every once in a while I would go down there and just see. And what we called the people that down, were down there that recorded everybody. Then we'd go over the tapes and pick the, pick the acts. Uh, but we called them the shock troops because um, 
what they saw was just like really amazing. Now, is it true about Chuck Barris? Like all that secret? You know what? Do you know? I mean, I just that movie was great, and it's just so funny that because the guy was brilliant, he could probably have done that. I, you know, I get that a lot. I get that question a lot, and I was also a contestant on the dating game. <laughs> Were you a contestant on the dating game? Uh, well, because I worked at the production company, uh, one of the bachelors dropped out so mike metzger who was producing the the dating game said hey you want to you want to do you want to sit in for the we, we had a guy drop out you want to so sure but i i used to chaperone I, I went to amsterdam as a chaperone because it was a perk that chuck would give you for you know being a being a good employee what um, do you mean a chaperone like what to go there i mean with his kids or no no you 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 cannot as a game show send two strangers to a place without some kind of supervision. Okay. So that's what the chaperone's job was. But for me, when I went to Amsterdam, uh, the, the guy or the girl that was picked didn't want to go, so the girl ended up taking her boyfriend, so there's really no liability. So they stayed in a room together. I stayed in a, in a room by myself. I gave them money when they needed it, and I, wow. took, the, I, you know, I b- took the receipts and all that stuff and paid for cabs and was responsible for, you know, making sure luggage was there and stuff, but pretty much that was it. I just wandered around Amsterdam for a week and a half. Now, when you were doing this writing for the gong show and all that and chaperoning, were you still doing stand-up or you pretty much had put your stand-up hooks off? I mean, had you uh, put it I, on the shelf? I was doing a, I was doing a little stand-up, but frankly, I knew what it took to get the voice. And I knew that it took five, ten years to, f- to find that nugget, to find that voice. And I still have, um, you know, I worked the door at Westwood, and uh, I-, I was there when Robin Williams first went up. And, uh, and Leno sat in the back of the club, and I still have the notes. I still have the notes from him uh, okay. because he was part of Jimmy Walker's management, t- uh, management uh, Ebony Genius. And I don't know if you know about this, but Jimmy... Uh, uh, would troll for comedy talent, not necessarily people who had done anything, and that, that's really the brilliance of that management company. So he would he would look for talented people. It was uh, Leno, Letterman were were both part of that. Wayne Klein, um, uh, uh, Jeff uh, Stein, Frank Dungan, uh, me, uh, and there were there were just a, a few people that they that they wanted to take and nurture. Uh, and they didn't care what they had done. They only cared that they were funny. Okay. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did stand up. I did some, you know, some emceeing. But when you watch Leno work, and, and really in a club for 40 minutes, and you watch Letterman work. I mean, Letterman, Letterman was amazing. I mean, even, even when he had the beard. I mean, I knew him when he had the beard. And he said, hey, you think his beard makes me look like a spider monkey? Um, Going up at you know one thirty two o'clock in the morning. So he would say spider monkey because I always wonder because you know if you saw uh, Cabin Boy, he would he, he goes hey yeah I want to want to buy a monkey and I always wondering so that's probably I, he seems like he has a fascination with monkeys I've seen like the monkey watching the cat like that video he shows all the yeah, time yeah I don't I don't I don't know about I don't know about that but he, yeah that was a that was a joke of his he also did uh, you know uh, you know I, my apartment's over there across from the tattoo spelling error correction clinic I mean. Only Letterman can put could put a sentence and a joke together like that. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, I and watching those guys and then watching Robin Williams go up and work that room, and you just go, uh, right? It, I'm not gonna be able to do. <laughs> to well, do yeah, this. and it does. It just takes like you look. Louis C.K.'s balling up now, but I mean. He's been around forever. I mean, he yeah. wrote for the Chris Rock show. I mean, he's been, and that's the thing. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, people, I mean, Louis C.K. has been, it takes forever. And then finally now it's like, oh, now he's just, but he's been always cutting edge. But it's just, you're true. You're right. It takes so long, you know, and then to sit there and get to a point and then keep that edge. I mean, a lot of times, you know, you get a new comic, they they get their break too quick and they they the headline and they go in the middle, a road middle, blows them off the stage, and then they're sitting there going, no one wants to touch him. And they don't have, well, they don't have the foundation. Right. I mean, these guys have been doing it for 20, 30, you know, Kathy Ladman, you know, she's been doing it for a while and she's got those legs. Right. And she can react to any situation. Gaffigan, the same way. I mean, these guys are, you know, Mark Maron, these guys are masters 
they are masters because they've been doing it for so long. They're really smart about their craft, and they really understand what it takes. I mean, I, I saw Leno at uh, the Charlie Hill Memorial, and I hadn't seen him do stand-up in uh, 15 years. And he was a monster. I mean, he was a monster. And, every, and he was just so at ease. And so, and anybody who's 19 or 20 sitting out in the audience going, ah, oh, that looks so easy. Right. Because, just because of the ease at which they can just adapt to any situation at yeah. all. Well, that's like I, uh, the Robin Williams Memorial when uh, Alan, do you know Alan Steven? Mm-hmm. When Alan went up and he just told stories. I mean, and that's a room of comics. And comics, that's the hard, you know, comics, you know, were very judgmental. Man, he just ripped the room apart. Everybody was dying. He was telling stories about doing drugs up at... Stephen Stills' house and with Robin and his mom, Robin Stephen Stills' uh, mom was there and she just recognized Robin because she's like, oh, and she, I think she actually thought he was a real alien. And he from Mark and Mindy and you're just oh, sitting there going, man, this guy's a, and it's true, he's a master. I mean, and he doesn't get his ado, and that's one thing about this business. I mean, you know, you've been around and you know you translate into other avenues. Some of these guys sit there and go, man, how how is an Alan Stevens like a household name because he just did in front of comics, killed it. Just I'll tell you what, the same thing that night at the Laugh Factory uh, at Charlie's at Charlie's uh, uh, memorial. Just, I mean, it blew me away because I remember Alan when he did the when he did the condens the, the condensation of the Wizard of Oz and it was this bit where he was just uh, he was just putting little catchphrases from the Wizard of Oz together. It was like, yeah, okay, really? Yeah. What do you what, where are you going with that? And um, and then to go from that. To you know, and look, we all start out. We all do shit. I can say that, right? Yeah. That we think is is funny. Uh, but then, again, we learn and we hone. And and the guy's been doing it for forty years, and it's just like he killed. Yeah, uh, it, it was unbelievable. Like like you sit there and you're going, and he's just telling story. I mean, he's just telling these stories, but he yeah, has he's just such talking. an amazing stage presence, yeah. and he just knows what works really strong. And and it's just yeah, we were sitting there, me and Jeff Martyr and Mark Brazil were sitting there, and we're like. Wow, we're like that too. Just like and even comics wrote there. Everyone like on Facebook, they're like, "Man, you you killed it!" You know, you just and there's you know, Norm Macdonald went up. You know, other people went up, but everyone remembered Alan Steven. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So you're you're right for the Gong Show, and you're you're kicking around. You're not really performing that much because you, you you know you don't really and you don't probably don't want to have the dedication. It was like I don't want to dedicate myself to that when I can you know I don't want to make ten dollars at the door when I can write making money. Yeah, yeah. And the the uh, you know I, I mean it was made, and then uh, suddenly I was making four fifty a week at the Gong Show, and it's like okay this may be the way to go. Uh, but I still loved Monday nights, and I used to MC Monday nights. Mitzi would still let me go on Monday nights, so. I'm uh, emceeing one Monday night, and I see this comic, and he's he's really good. And uh, I talked to him afterwards, and it was like instant chemistry. It was like like the most amazing person I'd ever met, just comedically. Because um, as Leno told me, he said, "Look, when you're starting out, just just cop someone else's voice. Don't cop their jokes, but just their attitude and their and their swagger." And for me, it was Woody. Uh, and you know, I had memorized, you know, the moose story, and you know, I was kidnapped, and you know, can, can you the, can you do a Woody Allen? I did a little Woody, you know. Hey, See, relax. My favorite, on. my favorite Woody Allen is from Crimes Misdemeanor when he goes, "It's a strange man defecated on my sister," <laughs> and his and his, his and his wife goes, "Why?" And he said, goes, "It's a strange man defecated on my sister." Uh, I, I think my it's really weird. I think my favorite Woody movie is Broadway Danny Rose. Okay. I mean, that just, you know, can, can I just interject one concept at this juncture? He's so great. <laughs> I, I know he's just so amazing. Uh, so anyway, so uh, me and this guy, Richard Whitley, uh, we struck up this friendship. And for two years, we were inseparable, you know, uh, as two heterosexual men can be. Uh, and, you know, it'd be like two o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up with a bit and I'd reach for the phone and call him and go, okay, Whit, circus analyst. Okay, so it's a therapist who travels with the circus, and you know, and you know, it's like uh, you know, I, I, the clown is sitting in the uh, he's he's on right. the sofa. You know, I, I I can't make a decision about my house. I just painted it. What color? All of them. You know, I can't go anywhere in the car unless there are forty other people with me. I mean, so you know, and then we 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 spritz, and uh, we we went to uh, see Friday the Thirteenth, and we went to see Airplane, and I said, why don't we do a spoof 
of Friday the 13th. Why don't we do a horror spoof? And we had been we had wanted to write together. We had wanted to write longer form together okay. for a while. So we had come up with this idea. It was this art forgery thing, this really complicated kind of caper picture, kind of like Top Cappy. And uh, we went to Whitley's agent. Whitley, by that time, had written Rock and Roll High School. Okay. So we went to Whitley's agent, and we pitched this art thief thing. And he goes, okay, I can, I can get you some meetings on that. That's, you know, we, can, we could probably get you a deal. What else you got? Well, we kind of got this kind of cross between Friday the 13th and Airplane. He, the agent reaches over, picks up the phone, says, I got these guys here. They've got this idea. It's a cross between this and this. We, that afternoon, we had a meeting. That, that night, we had a deal. Wow. And uh, uh, pending the third act, because we didn't have a third act. So a couple days, we, we kind of tinkered, and we got a third act. And we met the producer, uh, Doug Chapin, at Mr. Chow's. And we pitched him the third act. And he goes, let's go. Let's do it. So uh, suddenly, I'm a screenwriter. Now, what was the movie called? Pandemonium. Okay. Now, so now, but now it was originally called Thursday the twelfth, but Saturday the fourteenth, which ripped off our idea, came out first. Okay. So we had to change the title, and I, I hated the title Pandemonium. How did you come up with the title? We didn't come up with the title. Oh, the, the studio, studio came up with the title. It's just amazing how it's just you know, and these, that's what's great about you know the this, this business. And to this day, every Thursday the twelfth, Whitley calls me. Okay, really? I, I'm, well, we talk all the time. That's but, good. Um, but it's just amazing how fast it happened. Like, you went in with something else, and you guys were newbies for this screen. I mean, it was your, you, you know, you really, you were both writers and comics, but you were newbies in this screenplay. The one you wanted to pitch didn't, but your idea, you sold it off an idea. We sold it off an idea. And the idea was that it was, I mean, it was a horror spoof, and it was about a, uh, a football player who was terrorizing a camp of cheerleaders because he always wanted to be a cheerleader, but he was such a good football player that no one would let him. Okay. So he's killing these cheerleaders off one at a time. Okay. So, and that was, that was the idea, you know? And, um, and so it was, you know, it was a, it was a spoof. And, and it was Judge Reinhold's first movie, uh, Paul Rubin's first movie. Wow. It was uh, Phil Hartman's in it, um, uh, Donald O'Connor, Kay Ballard, um, There's a blast from the past. Kate yeah, Ballard. Uh, Tab Hunter was the wow. was the football player, and Candy Azara was the head the head cheerleader. But uh, yeah, and it was you know I'm I'm 23 years old, and I'm on the set of a movie that United Artists is making, and it was just a real heady experience. And of course, the movie did nothing. They released it uh, in this is not a lie. They released it in Louisville, Kentucky, on Derby Weekend. Oh, that's great! Yeah, you, you, you get ratings there. People are going to see that yeah, right off people, the bat. Yeah, you know, uh, as uh, you know, <laughs> as Whitley would say, it's on HBO. It's on Tax Right Off Theater right now. Right. And, uh, and my joke was, it's at drive-ins all over the country at one in the afternoon. That's funny. So, that's very funny. Um, you know, but it was it was an experience, and it launched a ten-year career for both of us, writing pilots and screenplays. Uh, and pretty much leaving stand up, stand up behind. Now you guys were a writing team. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're doing it, and you're getting you're getting pilots. But I mean, that must be crazy. I, I always I always hear it from an actor standpoint because you know that they're, they're on a pilot and it doesn't get picked up. I I would think it must be harder if you're a writer and you get this pilot and you put all that work into it. And you have, of course, when you write one, you have a vision for the next yeah, all season. Right. Let, let me tell me what happened. What is that like? Because that's, that's, that would uh, piss wait. me off. No. Let me tell you what happened. Okay. This is a great story. And uh, we can go off on this, on this producer if you want because they're amazing show business stories. So Whitley and I are writing a, a movie called Regatta for Pat Proft and Neil Israel. They are fresh off of Bachelor Party, and they have this, this huge deal. And so they hire us to write this uh, screenplay called uh, Regatta. Uh, snobs versus sno- slobs on, on the water. So it's, you know, it's the... Caddyshack of the, of the, of the wave. Animal it, house on the, on the water. Okay. So we're writing this, this thing, and we've got an office at Fox, and it's in this little trailer, and we, there's no bathroom in the trailer. So we... Uh, I'm telling you. That's okay. just, you so think, no, that's, people, that's the glamour of Hollywood. They're, they're, they're hired to write. That's how writers get treated. You know, they, don't, they don't even get a, a, they can't even take a crap there's, there's in, the no, tail, in the trailer. There's no bathroom. Uh, hold it. 
That's what yeah. we got. That was the, you know, my agent, I, I got you everything you wanted, but no bathroom. Sorry. Uh, no number one, no number two. You got to do it at home. So anyway, so we got to come out of the trailer and go to use the bathroom in this bungalow. So we're walking down to the bathroom and we smell this cigar, this cigar wafting out of this, this bungalow office. And we kind of go in there. And we're just in investigating because we both are smoking cigars. You know, we're in our 20s and we're, you know, we're screenwriters in Hollywood, for Christ's sake. Of course you're smoking a cigar. Right. And, uh, and sitting behind the desk is this guy named Maurice Duke. Okay, Maurice Duke is probably about 75 years old at this point. Maurice Duke, um, well, we asked him, we said, you know, your name sounds really familiar, Mr. Duke. What have you done? I produced 104 pictures, all bad. Okay? <laughs> so he's one of these really great old Hollywood characters. Okay? And unbeknownst to us, he's got, he, he had polio as a child. So he had those crutches, you know, with the, with the metal cuffs around the right. arms. And stuff. Unbeknownst to us, he's, he's got this polio thing. And he's sitting behind his desk, and we're talking to him. He's sitting behind his desk, and he undoes his pants, and he unzips his flank, and he takes a styrofoam cup off of his desk, and he starts peeing in it <laughs> while we're talking to him. And this is de rigueur for him. This is, he just does this all the time during meetings and doing, you know. And he gives it to he gives it, Tony. His, his, his flunky, Tony. And Tony would come, he'd pick up the, he'd take the glass, and Tony would go outside, oh, and he'd dump it in the plants, and he'd come in, and he'd put the cap back on. To, so anyway, guys, my best friend here is B. Donald Grant. He's president of CBS. Come in with an idea. You're young. I'm old. Come on, let's go. So Whitley and I go, go back in our office. And we go, hey, you know, well, yeah, we got some stuff in the trunk. Let's go talk to Duke. So we go to a very far-fetched idea, one camera, half-hour comedy, which nobody was doing then. And we go, yeah, it's this thing about this uh, detective who, you know, he's a cartoonist, but he's got this office next to a detective, and the cartoonist does a detective strip, and he gets his stories from the detective next door. Okay. But the detective dies. So he, he has no stories. So what he does is he poses as a detective, goes on those capers, works that works that caper into his comic strip and that's every week it's, it's some new caper okay that's the idea great I love it let's go to let's go to CBS go to CBS pitch it five minutes have a deal you're, you're good at those quick deals man well me me and Whitley we, we and we go out to the parking lot and we go we have to write this now <laughs> we, right. We have to do this. We have to come up with a Bible. We have to come up with characters. We have to come up, you know. But Duke had had an overall deal with CBS, like a blind pilot deal. And anything he wanted to do, he could do. He was seriously best friends with B. Donald Grant. And, uh, and Duke, Duke was very fond of saying, see, you get 30 grand for going to the Pisha. Um, and uh, there are many Duke stories I can tell you, but uh, uh, unless you want to hear them, I won't go into them. But uh, but he would he would he got the script. He got the first draft of the script. It was called Murder Inc. I N K. Okay. And uh, and the notes were, <laughs> where are the funnies? It's like <laughs> Duke. There are three jokes a page. There are three three jokes a page. Where are the funnies? Uh, that's that that was his that was his note. So anyway, so CBS loved the script. They were only, they were only uh, uh, I guess, producing 10, 12 pilots that year, and they didn't, they didn't do it. But we got another, we got another pilot from it. And uh, that's not how Duke told us. Uh, the pilot was over at CBS. We were waiting to hear, waiting to hear. And he calls me on a Friday afternoon. He goes, I heard from CBS. I want you to come to the apartment. He's lived uh, in the, in the, Wilshire Corridor. Okay. The, uh, the condos there in Westwood. Come to the apartment. We'll talk. And so I hang up and I turn to Whitley. I go, hey, Duke said he heard from CBS. He's inviting us to the apartment. If they passed, they really would have, he really would have told us that they passed on the phone. Right. So we're on, we're, we're on our way to Duke's apartment and we're going, okay, Mike Hogan's is going to be there. Bud Grant is going to be there. They're going to give us a 12-episode commitment. We're going to be mailbox money. There's going to be dancing girls. There's going to be champagne. There's going to be a party. We walk into Duke's apartment. Duke is sitting there, spread eagle, on his sofa with his 
with his pants undone because I guess he had just peed, <laughs> and and uh, and he looks up at us and there's nobody else in the apartment except for Tony, and he looks up at us and he goes, "The pilot's out." Could you have not <laughs> told us this? I know, yeah. That's on like... the phone. Could you? Why? Why? But the good news is you got another pilot. So we wrote. We wrote a couple. We wrote a couple for for Duke, but. Um, what a, what a, a, an amazing character! So so you had the pilots, and now when did you start the, the art of photography? Because your 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 photography came. Uh, well, I did photography when I was doing stand up. Okay, did you take headshots of comics? Or you I just took. No, uh, I wandered. To, it was mostly street photography, and I I just fell in love with it because it was just great. And I bought you know the Canon AE one, and everything was on film. But it, you know at that time. Because film processing was very expensive, I stopped shooting, and uh, and I didn't pick it up again until about seven, eight years ago. Okay. Now, what, what you and Whitley? What uh-huh. did you guys have a falling out? Or I mean, after ten years, you just just got tired of writing together? We got yeah, you know, because I think it would be it it would probably be very not stressful, but you probably just after a while you, you both change I mean you know people don't understand like your writing styles change yeah, it's probably can, hard well look you know I mean at one point we were so close uh, I, I would I would say that, and we used to write in his living room where we rent an office and then we go okay we're in like say okay we're in a car driving okay we need the scene here okay and then we'd both be quiet because we'd both be thinking and then Whitley would say did you ever have paella from this restaurant? And and he, it would be this total non sequitur, like okay. way out there. And I would trace it. Okay, I said, okay, so you went from the car to here to here to here to here. And I could trace his thought process. And that's how close we were. Okay. Um, and uh, and I, I, I it just, you know, I had a child. And he's still, you know, and that kind of really affects you in a uh, mature way you oh, know yeah. I mean, you, you really have to grow up yeah it's and you just and if, if the other person isn't doesn't have a child and doesn't have that responsibility yeah, it's like for me people you know before my girlfriend moved out here you know i was always out people like yeah you know we never see anymore i go well because i i like actually sitting at home i yeah. said i was out because i was bored i didn't feel like sitting at home alone yeah. and it's true you you really like some of my friends i've grown i mean apart from just because it's like I don't, I don't want to just go hang out with you guys. I'd rather hang out with her. That's why she's living with me and not you. And I'll tell you what the moment was. The moment was we had both read the Billy Wilder book because Billy Wilder was like God to us. Okay. And uh, there was a story in the Billy Wilder book that he had that he had, but had never developed or never did anything with it. And so we called our agent. We said, hey, listen, set up a meeting with Billy Wilder. We'll go in and we'll tell him what our idea is. Lo and behold, we get a meeting with Billy Wilder. Wow. And this is when he was on a little Santa Monica. And so we go up to his office and everything from people, all these leather-bound scripts and all these pictures and all, and he, he's still working on a little Remington manual. What is it like you meet this guy who he was like one of your idols? I mean, you must have been nervous because it's like you're meeting this person that you, you know, and I mean, when you said your agent with Stuart, I mean, you're probably thinking... We might get lucky, but it's far-fetched to be able to get in a meeting with Billy Wilder. Yes. I mean, what was it? Well, you must have been the crap in your pants. Nervous and in awe. Okay. I mean, and, yeah, boys, hey, boys, you want that cigar? And we're both like, uh, no, that's okay. We're kicking ourselves even to this day that we turned down a cigar from Billy. God, yeah, geez. It's so stupid. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, yeah, okay, boys, what you got? Um, well, we, we kind of have this, and we start telling them the idea. He goes, that's terrible, boys. You have Charlie's aunt and you killed Charlie's aunt in the first scene. What are you doing? This is the mud. And he went on to describe what was not in the book, but what, where he had gone in the script. And it was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so, you know, and it was exactly the same feeling I had when watching Leno, that he was so far ahead of where we were. He, he Just the thought, just the character development just the, the beginning of the story arc was so far ahead of where we were that it was like oh god it's like really depressing right 
And uh, so after the meeting, we go outside, and Whitley goes, oh, my God, you know, we got the idea. And I'm like, don't you understand what he said? Right. Can't you, can't you grasp what, you know, what just happened in there? I mean, what we did to this story just doesn't do it justice it just isn't good it's okay. not you know and so uh, he was he was married to it. he still loved the story and he went ahead i said look go ahead write the script on spec that's fine uh we both got story credit uh, it never got made and he did a, he did a fine job with the script but uh, but it was that moment where you kind of go okay he's here and i'm here and uh so we started looking for work on our own and he he was um he was, you know, he he always was much better at marketing himself than I was. Okay. Uh, so what happened with me was I um, I tripped into promotion. I tripped into on-air promotion, and that came from my friend Kevin Burns, who is who's like a giant in the you know industry. With um, uh, he produces the Girls Next Door. He produces Kendra. He produces um, Oak Island. He produces uh, a lot of anti biographies, and he was he and I had the same agent, and so my agent gives Kevin one of my scripts, Mr. Nice Guy, and Kevin loves it. He flips out because he wanted to direct at the time, and so that started our friendship, me and Kevin. So Kevin was teaching at Boston. He moves out here to work at Fox in the promotions department, the on-air promotions department. And uh, one of the first things he does is he does these Batman interstitials with Burt Ward and Adam West and the Batmobile. Okay. But he don't have a writer. So he calls me and says, you want to write these? I said, sure. Yeah. He goes, you know, I'll give you, you know, three grand for a couple days. Like, what, really? Like, for just sitting down and writing jokes? Sure. So it was like, okay, this, this might be an interesting way to go. And from there went Mr. came Mr. Belvedere, all the Mr. Belvedere promos. Um, and from there came Simpsons. So you write, you would write the quick, like the yes, the promo, the, okay, the thirty-second promo. And but like, what would you? I mean, because a lot of times they show clips from the show. But I mean, what would you? That's what you do. You, well, it, that that is a whole skill in itself. Okay. That uh, and I teach this at uh, Santa Monica College. I've done it for three years now. Uh, it's it's promo writing, and so what you do is you screen the show, you pick out the funniest bites. And what I tell my students is it's, that it's horizontal and vertical. And that really kind of applies to all storytelling. It's horizontal and vertical. Um, that the horizontal part is your voiceover. Tonight on Simpsons. And then here comes the vertical, which is the joke. The joke doesn't necessarily move the story forward. That's the horizontal's job. That's okay. your job as the copywriter. Um, and to make it compelling, and then to you know, and I've I've done oh I don't know I just did season twenty six of Simpsons promos. Wow, that's so cool! And there are so many jobs. I know there used to be a comic named Fran Fran Salamita who got into that for NBC, and he would do the voices too. And like we with that NBC slogan years ago, right? But it's it's this whole separate career that you never think about it when you watch it. You just sit there and and you don't. I mean, technically, when I watch TV and I see a preview, I just think oh someone just. You know, just they, they're showing a thing, but you don't think that that has to be produced, and someone has to write that. And that's what's great. That's what's great about it is because you don't think that someone wrote it, so it looks natural. Yeah, and the 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 great thing is 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 that there's these there they are these little bursts of creativity, and that you write the script, and then you go into the edit bay, and you edit it, and you voice it, and you put music on it, and you finish it, and it goes on the air, and it's done. And you do all that. Uh, I don't edit. Okay. But I do choose music. I do write it. I do direct voiceover, um, and then you know, and then you got to tag it out tonight, Saturday, next week, this week, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, and it it became just kind of like this real creative, this little creative outlet, where you would, uh, you know, uh, we need a generic for The Simpsons. Oh, great! You know, let's do something with Ned Flanders. Okay. And then you would pick all these Ned Flanders things, and then you would wrap it up in this concept. And there's your spot. So, uh, so I did. I did that for 15 years. Wow, it's just so funny, you know. Just you, you go from writing a screenplay, from doing stand up to writing a screenplay, and and let's be honest, with your screenplay and your pilot, you got really lucky. I mean, you guys just for the point, and it's great. And but that's 
But the same thing is, then after a while, you grew out of the, your partner, but you were resilient. You're still in the business, and you end up with something that now it's it's. Uh, well, you're still doing something creative, right? Exactly, and it's and it and you have and you actually have more of the more you're more creative on that because you have to you see the whole thing now. You know when you know when you write a screenplay, if they they're going to take it and do what they want. Yeah, you know, same with the pilot, they're going to take it, they're going to do what they want. And you this, do have, you, you're you're the man, and you do have a little flexibility because you know you've come up with this concept and you hire you I hire the director, right? I hire the cast, and so when you go out and shoot, you're making the calls. Uh, I mean, I don't step on the director's toes. If there's a note, I tell the director, right. and then we discuss it. But um, and and then I I, I was a vice president at Game Show Network for ten years, and that's that's what I did. I was a basically creative director. All of their on-air stuff, all their launch stuff, even things like you know promos for Newlywed Game. What what do you do with Newlywed Game? It's been on the air for fifty years. Right. What, how do you how do you do that? So you you break the promo up to, you know the uh, you know the wedding, and then you show this really beautiful wedding, and then you have the honeymoon, and then there's people on the beach and they're spinning each other, and then you go the marriage, and it's like, dirty clothes go in the hamper, dirty clothes in the hamper, and it's basically same issues, new show. Okay. And, you know, but. But it's always this, it's always been this creative challenge, and I just did Raising Hope. I did all ninety episodes of Raising Hope. Okay, uh, Tim Timothy Stock was on. He was one of the writers, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and so was oh, what's his name? I I'm, I, I'm not going to say because I forget his name. Binkley, Greg Binkley. Yeah, but you know, I you, did you the know, promos. Right. I did the promos for syndication, and then season twenty six of Simpsons. Wow. So uh, it's it's great, and it's it's great money, and you can still be creative. And uh, and I'm not dumping all of this energy into a black hole like a screenplay, right. which then gets picked apart by not only the studio but the producer, where's the, the director, the, and where's the funnies? <laughs> where's the funnies? And then you've got the actors, and, they, and you know, it, it, there's a real clarity of vision that you can have in in these thir- little thirty second pockets. Now, because we we're running out of time, your photography. Well, the photography it, that, that came give you, about. Wait, I'm just going to ask you a question real quick. Okay. Do you find it easier because you take actors? I know you did a professional, but you take headshots for actors. Do you find it easier because you have that creative, the comedy and stuff like that? Do you find it easier to work with them than, let's say, you go on? I mean, my first headshot was from, from Dope I got on Groupon. It was on, like, Sunset Boulevard, and this guy was just a freaking cheese ball. Yeah. But do you think because you're artistic you, and you, you relate to them more, you think? Well, here's, here's you know, my process is I spend 15 minutes uh, to 20 minutes talking to the subject if I don't know them. I mean, I know you, you know, uh, and I know, you know, all, a, a lot of friends, and I know your mentality, you know, because you're a stand-up. Uh, so I do, I do spend some time getting comfortable with people. And I find that when you make people laugh, then they open up. And uh, when they open up, then they're much more susceptible to direction. And that's, that's when I do corporate or when I do actors or comedians, um, humor is the key it's the key right you you, you know uh, you know you can do lighting you can do other, other, but it but and uh i always try to get somebody to laugh and i don't use the laughing shot i use the shot or two after the laugh because your eyes are smiling they're not empty you're not you don't have a vacant smile on your face you are really genuinely having a good time and that comes across in the in the photograph and I really kind of pride myself uh, on doing that. I, I just shot down in um, Hermosa Beach, this, uh, you know, r- commercial real estate guys, 23 commercial real estate agents, okay? Try to get these guys to laugh. Right. But, but because they're salesmen, they're kind of out there and they're kind of, you know, they, they all have their own personality. And so what you have to do, and you have, you got 23 people, so you got 15 minutes apiece. Uh, and you got to get in. You gotta, you know, make them laugh, and then take the shots, and pose them right, and light them right, and boom, on to the next person. And that is that is the way it goes. When I do an actor, it takes uh, two and a half to three hours, and we usually get uh, two to three hundred, and we use seven, five to seven, um, and those are the ones I'll finish. Uh, but it it is it is just so much fun to get out there with uh, with no with no holds barred. 
and nobody telling you what to do, what not to do. And, you know, I have a certain style. I have a very specific style. It's in studio. Uh, if I go out of studio, it costs a little bit more because I've got to take an assistant. Right. I don't want to shoot outside without an assistant, without somebody holding a diffuser or without somebody holding a reflector and placing that reflector correctly. I mean, I could take a stand and, and, and walk it around, but then I get too distracted from the subject. So, um, so and, and, that, and, and what led to that was when I was GSN, I would do these campaigns, and the campaigns were the, the, the stills were always the most fun part for me of the campaign. Okay. Because it was way too much stress with, with video because it's way too expensive. And so what we would do is we would do one day, we'd, do, we'd shoot the spots, and then we'd shoot the stills. And I was always hanging out with, uh, you know, Kevin Lynch or Matthew Ralston or whoever was, was shooting the stills and asking them questions about, you know, lighting and all that stuff. And, and I find that most photographers extremely open and very, very happy to share you know, little secrets and little tips that they've, that they've um, you know, gotten along the way. So I take all of that history and all of that, and I put it into, you know, a session. Now, when you, sit, when you, when you take 200 to 300 pictures, you say you go with five or seven, do you know, as soon as you see it, that's the one you're going to go? I mean, do you just have that yeah. sense that you've been doing it and you take a lot of photographs that you sit there and go, okay, you may, you know, because you know people, let's say I, I may like one. Right. But you as a photographer says, well, I think you should go with this one. Do you just know, do you have an instinct where you just sit there and you know when you take, like when you see that picture, you go, this, you know, is, this it, is the one. It's, it's funny. It's very deceptive. Um, it may look different in camera than it looks on the screen. So okay. I, shoot, I shoot everything tethered. Everything comes into the computer from the camera. And then uh, I'll shoot 20 and then I'll bring the subject around and we will look and we'll review the 20. And we'll see, see what you did here, see what you did there. Um, and that does two things, both of them good. They either see, oh, I, I see what you're talking about, and they're, you know, th they want to change it, or they're extremely happy with what they're seeing, and okay. then they get encouraged. So, so that, that works in both, in both scenarios. Um, and then I'll sit with the, with the subject, and we'll go through one at a time, and we'll mark and usually out of 300, I'll send them a link with about 80. Okay. And from that, they, with their agents, sit down and choose seven or eight. Now, what's your website? Uh, facefirstphotos.com. And now people can go and they can see your samples. Yeah. It's very, you have some very good samples there. And he also, yeah. he shot Kathy Labman, Pest Crew We Talk guest. And Kathy's headshots are great. I mean, and you did a great job with I that. Had a, I had two sessions with Kath. One was... Uh, one was the comedy one, and then another was uh, dramatic. So when she goes up for dramatic roles, she's got that. She's got that one as well. That's good. And now people, I tripped and fell, cut my mouth, and he was taking mine. And, but I liked what I saw until I cut my lip, and my lip, as I said, still bleeding, and my girlfriend was freaking out. But uh, but so so you have that now. Now when do you, when I felt do you terrible about that? By the it, way, it's my I trip. Don't that's you want you know it's. You know, I felt terrible so we're, because we're both the artistic type. We're like, oh, God, I took a fucking and that, time. And, you know, and, and that cart was way back. It was way off. It was way off the set. It's crazy. And uh, and you took a couple of steps after you tripped and right into it. Yeah, it's crazy. And uh, so now will you be doing uh, the game show time? And what, what, what's your next? Uh, are you still writing for The Simpsons? I'm, I'm still doing, uh, you know, I'm still producing because it's very good money. I can't walk away from it. Um, and I'm, and I'm doing headshots. I mean, you saw the studio yeah. space. Uh, there's there a lot of headshot business and a lot of corporate stuff. And then there's this new business that I don't really want to talk about Ooh. right now. Okay. Um, that is in the corporate realm that could be potentially amazing. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This gives some great stories. I, I just now that guy, the, the funnies, that's going to stick in my head. Maurice, I, yeah. I, I hear, I, for me, I envision him looking like John Aston. I don't know why. That's just the vision I have. But uh, so your website again is facefirstphotos.com. Check that out, people. And uh, yeah, and check his workout. Jamie's a very good photographer. And I'm going to get my headshots done. And you can see him after my lip clears up. Hopefully, it'll be done soon. So yeah, so follow your Twitter, your tweet. Uh, I. I do, but I don't. But what's your Twitter? Uh, it's Jamie B. Klein. Okay. Go follow Jamie B. Klein. Follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 325 episodes up there. Posting a bunch this coming week. Go to iTunes or Stitcher. Type in one word, Cooper Talk. You can find me on there. Uh, listen to me on some great affiliates. You got the uh, allradiox.com, wsdichicago.com, rantradionetwork.com. 
the405media.com, and I'll be starting to play. I may have started to play last week, I don't know, on wildfireradio.com. That's out of my hometown area of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and there's some great shows in there. My friend Joe Matteris, Big Daddy Graham, I thought of a comedy legend, and Mitch the Wild Thing Williams. Also, stopthesalt.com will be up soon. My cookbook, I actually get a copy sent to me this Friday so I can proof it, and then we'll be selling that. So more news on Twitter. So follow me at Twitter, at CooperTalk, and coopertalk.net. Cooper at coopertalk.net is my email. And that's about it. Remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'm Steve Cooper. Have a good weekend.